Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Hindsight is such a bittersweet gift we have. How can we look back on our choices and learn from them? Did we do it right? Did we make a huge mistake? The nature of COVID-19 with its waves and regional timeline gives us the opportunity to hear from a university leader who is two to three weeks ahead of those of us living on the East Coast. Our guest today, Dan, shares what has worked and what his team has learned over the past six to eight weeks of working remotely. Dan's perspective gives me hope as he acknowledges the pain and loss, but is able to see the positive growth we can bring forward into the next fiscal year and beyond. Dan Peterson joined the University of Washington in 2016 and serves as Vice President for Development for University Advancement and President of the UW Foundation. He has served in leadership roles for four leading public research universities, including as Vice Chancellor at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Dan is focused on fostering a best-in-class, fully integrated advancement organization at UW in close partnership with his college and unit leaders, with a mission of enhancing the impact UW has throughout the world. His 30-year career in the field includes 21 years at Washington State University. Dan's tenure also includes UW Medicine Advancement and Oregon State University Foundation. Dan was raised in Federal Way, Washington, is a 1982 graduate of WSU, and earned his law degree from Seattle University in 1985. He is a member of the Washington State Bar Association. I would like to give a special shout out to loyal listener and supporter Ben Renberg, who introduced me to Dan and recommended him for the debrief. As always, you can share ideas and future guests on my Instagram account at devdebrief. Thank you for making today's episode possible, Ben. Now let's get started. So Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Catherine, it's my pleasure. Um, grateful for the opportunity. What I would say is that it, your, your set of questions gave me actually a, a, a chance to jump off of the hamster wheel and actually pause and do some reflecting and, and thinking about uh, what has been going well. And um, so it, this is really a good opportunity. Thank you. Good. Well, you know, I've been watching Cuomo every day and he's been saying we shouldn't be reflecting in the middle of the game and that we, you know, we're in the thick of it. But at the same time, what's so interesting about this pandemic is that there are waves. And my understanding is that you are two or three weeks ahead of us. Would you say that's right? I think that's right, certainly from the uh, modeling that you see. And in fact, one of, the, one of the main models that's being used nationally is a model from the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, one of the things that our policymakers are, are looking at across the country. So I think that's right. Knowing that, I thought it would be interesting to have a little bit of a conversation in hindsight because you were one of the first... I guess you could say hotspots right. hit the U.S.? A couple of thoughts. First of all, I think our region benefited from the University of Washington having such a strong 
academic health sciences ecosystem. And we, the region benefited because the public policymakers, from the governor to the county executive to the mayor of Seattle, all of those individuals and their teams put a lot of stock and faith and trust in the medicine, public health recommendations that were coming from the University of Washington's health science system. I mentioned the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHME, if people want to look at that by way of example. So there was a lot of trust, and I think that trust allowed these public servants to see the University of Washington as a beneficial resource and ally to help them as public policymakers navigate their way through it. So we were early to social distancing, now termed physical distancing. Second, I think institutionally, we benefited from being a quarter school. And so we were able to kind of get our limp our way through the end of the winter quarter and then use the break and the first week of spring quarter to reposition the whole institution around remote learning. We offer 7,000 classes per quarter. Of the 7,000 classes that were stood up or would have been stood up for spring quarter, less than 2% of those were not able to be offered this quarter in uh, via remote uh, uh, learning. So huge shout out to the faculty and to the mm-hmm. uh, IT folks and the administrative infrastructure that, that allowed the university to, uh, to pivot so quickly to remote learning. The timing benefited in the sense that we had that break between quarters and we were able to see it coming, see the need to have to move to remotely, start to plan for that. And then third, as an advancement, we began moving towards the uh, middle of February, but we were all there by early March. So, so that's we, interesting because yeah. we were formally remote on March 16th. To your lead-in, yeah, mm-hmm. we are a couple of weeks ahead. And I think I was counting the weeks. I think I'm finishing my sixth week working remotely. I would say many of the team members were ahead of me in doing that. There may be a week or two ahead. Yeah. You know, having all of that behind you, what would you say have been best practices that we could be adopting as we're still kind of trying to figure it out? What I would say, Catherine, more than anything, and I'm so grateful that our university president, Anamari Kausi, dictated this to the entire institution. And she said, I want this institution to provide maximum flexibility to employees and for us to do everything that we can humanly possible to avoid layoffs and furloughs. She saw this as a first and foremost, as a human condition, not as a budget condition. That mantra of maximum flexibility has permeated itself throughout the institution and certainly throughout the university advancement team and culture. Self-care comes first before job productivity. If you're a manager taking care of yourself so that you can manage your team effectively and you can help take care of your team, that's got to be job one. Frankly, I'm more worried about sort of thinking about productivity in a fiscal year 21 sense. Um, You know, we'll get through the close of our fiscal year in June. I think we're going to see a long tail in this curve. 
So I think fiscal 21 is going to be impacted to a fair degree, particularly the, the fall period. What I, what I have found interesting, um, and I've asked this a lot of my managers, all of the college and unit chief advancement officers report into me. So I have about 25 direct reports. What I was intuiting and what people are telling me is that the teams are actually communicating more today than they were in the pre-COVID environment. You know, that, that to me is a really positive outcome here, right? That there is yeah. this increased intentionality around fostering a positive team dynamic and um, grateful to see that uh, occurring. And Yeah, we've seen a similar thing at Columbia. We're 16 schools and units. I'm not sure how that compares with you. 21. Okay, wow. So we thought 16 was a lot. Mm -hmm. And we've seen more talk between teams than before. Yeah, that's, that's what you're saying, right? I'm seeing it within the team, within okay. those 21. I'm certainly seeing the communication intra-team within right. those 25 or 26. But also, to your point, it's a good one. Yeah, seeing teams reaching out and particularly seeing, even at the gift officer level, we have a, we have a very powerful roundtable structure here. So we have a major gift, we have a chief advancement officer roundtable that they stood up and manage on their own. We have a major gift officer roundtable. So it's peer created support groups that have been going for years. And those groups have kicked into high gear now and are bringing those communities together across the units and helping to support each other with best practice tips, learnings, brainstorming. Um, so yeah, a, a lot of that as well. That's so great. So Dan, if someone had told you that you were going to have to be managing people digitally or virtually, I mean, what would you have told them? And how are you sort of managing yourself right now with this huge weight of this large staff and so much responsibility? Yeah, let me start with the self-care piece first in the spirit of maximum flexibility. When I joined the University of Washington, I made a decision. Um, it's hard for me to turn off the on switch. And so I made a choice to live um, somewhat distantly from campus so that I would give myself about a 35 to 45 minute commute in order to have some time to kind of process, unwind, and, and kind of try to check out. Don't have that when I go four feet through the door and I'm into the kitchen and, right. and living room, and right? So what I've, what I've asked my assistant to do is create an hour in the day, probably usually in the afternoon, where I can pick up, check out, go for a walk. We live in a beautiful community with a golf course. The golf course is closed right now, so we can walk the golf course. So Wonderful. We've got miles of trails in big second growth, old growth uh, timber. So, so I have a great place to get out and unwind and start that unwinding process. But I, I wasn't very good about doing that in the first three weeks. And in the last two weeks, I've become better at typically about three o'clock. I go do that. And then I come back and do one last quick check-in and, and, uh, and then ship, the, ship today's packet of work product off to my assistant for processing and, and getting ready for the next day. So that's what I've done. And I've told my team that's what I'm doing. I've told my direct reports yeah. and a model so that they don't feel like they have to be on the hamster uh, uh, cycle uh, every day, 24-7. Uh, I mean, you've talked about how you're supporting yourself, which is so yeah. important. 
but just yeah. from the perspective of being a leader at a huge university. Yeah, what's interesting, Catherine, is I've worked remotely before. Mm. So I've had not where it's been for three months in a row every day. Um, I was here at the University of Washington before. I, I led the major gifts team in the School of Medicine um, during our last campaign. And I worked remotely a day or two a week in that role. I was at Washington State for a number of years and kind of split time between the Pullman campus and then working remotely from Spokane in, in several different roles. So the idea of working remotely is not foreign to me and, and it's something that philosophically I have been a proponent of. So I've allowed other okay. team members to work remotely. So that part was pretty easy for me to get my head around sort of the how to do it, how to do it every day, eight hours a day in front of a screen. Yeah, that's a change. Figuring out the self-care piece became part of that, uh, uh, dealing with that change. I think we're going to see institutions become more comfortable philosophically, organizationally, empowering team members to work remotely. I think certainly we're going to see that at Washington. And with the cost of living in Seattle now, kind of almost at a New York level, to be able to recruit and retain talent, I think for us to move into a more flexible work environment setting, I think is going to help us from a, from a talent standpoint. So to me, this is going to be a good test run, trial run, and I think we're going to demonstrate effectiveness, and it's going to allow us as an organization to move forward in healthy ways. Yeah, that's great, and I, I do think you're right. I mean, there is such a debate around the idea that a major gift officer or any sort of individual contributor in advancement really could do about 80% of their role remote. Yeah, we looked at our metrics for major gift officers about two years ago as we were getting ready to go into the public phase of, the, of our campaign. I put a task force together and the task force came back and with recommendations. One of the significant recommendations they came back with was that we should measure substantive contacts rather than visits. Really? So we have already pivoted to that, again, with that philosophy that we need to engage prospective donors using the forum that they prefer. We're quickly coming out of a prospect pool that looks more like me and moving to a prospect pool that looks more like you from an age demographic. And, yeah. you know, these are generations that are digital native. Why would we not expect increasing numbers of our prospective donors are going to be comfortable engaging like you and I are today in this podcast? And we're already starting to see gift officers having success in this way. So are donors showing willingness to do Skype visits right now or Zoom or whatever they use? Yeah. You know, one of the things I'd like to leave your group with is uh, in the 08-09 Great Recession, uh, I have a planned giving background. And one of the leading planned giving consultants in the business is a guy named Robert Sharp. And Bob, during that Great Recession, advised gift officers to be near, dear, and clear with their donors and prospective donors. And I think the near, dear, and clear mantra makes a lot of sense in this environment. Near, reach out. Don't assume that donors and prospective donors don't want to hear from you. We're finding gift officers are getting a lot of visits, a lot of conversations, and in particular, telephone, which I th think was, is really fascinating because people have time People are telling me that folks that normally would have taken five or 10 minutes for 
a quick email exchange are now giving 45, 50, 60 minutes for a telephone conversation. So near, don't assume that people don't want to talk to you. Dear, be empathetic. I mean, you know, asking people about what they're, what they're going through, what, you know, what are they feeling? Those ranges of emotions are going to give us powerful insights into what they're thinking and where their psychology is relative to fulfilling a pledge payment relative to considering something new at Columbia or at the University of Washington. And then being clear is to again reinforce the important mission of our institutions. We are all institutions with thousand year trajectories. We're going to be the institutions that are going to educate the students to build new solutions to help our world work through pandemics, economic recessions, war, famine, climate change. That's what we do, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's American higher education does um, more so than any other higher education system in the world. It powers the innovation and innovation in both an economic and, and social sense. It powers the change. That mission is as relevant today and it's gonna to continue to be relevant. So I love Bob Sharp's mantra, near, dear, and clear. Yeah, and I love it too. I've been really impressed with our gift officers and how they've leaned in and used that. Heard yesterday about one of our engineering gift officers who has been doing donor visits via Skype with her department chair. So this is a woman from engineering, has two or three departments in engineering, is taking a new department chair through a donor onboarding program. No way. Okay. And, and the people are excited to meet this new chair, right? They're excited to hear what this new chair is thinking about for their department, right? That is I had, so fabulous. I heard a story yesterday about a, a plan giving officer who met with the former dean of the longtime dean of the School of Social Work, who welcomed the visit because COVID has caused her to rethink her estate plan. And she wants to rethink the impact that she wants to have on the School of Social Work. And so, I mean, if you've worked in the medicine, philanthropy arena, the whole notion of grateful patients going through times of crisis causes grateful patients to want to make sure that other patients can have, you know, a better outcome. You know, I think COVID has that kind of, it creates that kind of emotional response such mm -hmm. that I think a lot of our, a lot of our folks are going to think about what's important in their life and right. you know, back to near, dear and clear. You know, let's be clear about how our mission is important. Yeah. Well, when we first started talking, you were leading with the fact that your public health center, is that right? The, the, uh, our university health sciences system. Yeah. Yeah. You were saying that that has been a huge area of hope right now with right. everything that's going on. And we've seen this a little bit with the medical center at Columbia and I've seen it a little bit at other places, but have you seen that people are giving more to that? And can you tell yeah. us how the fundraising function works with that and, sure. and the changes you've seen? So our school of medicine knew that they were going to face some really significant operational challenges that were going to translate into budget challenges. Our school of medicine operates a four hospital healthcare system plus clinics throughout the region. So they knew they were going to become not only worried about trying to develop vaccines on the research side or, or right, the research enterprise, but they were going to be facing significant frontline patient testing, ICU, 
one of our four hospitals is the region's level one trauma center. So the worst of the worst were coming our way. Uh, we knew that. And so the medicine advancement team consulted with our, our principal gift team, and we actually stood up a focused principal gift mini campaign, if you will, 10, 15 prospective donors. And we asked them, would you support a medicine emergency response fund? To date, about $25 million towards that. So in the While past six weeks, you've yeah. raised $25 million. Yeah. Most everybody was asked to do at least a million. Okay. The high water mark was a $10 million gift that kind of seeded the, the effort. You can go to the Seattle Times and see a write-up about this, and you can get a sense of who the donors are. So it's fairly public. They were gracious in that regard. At the same time, the medicine advancement team stood up a more grassroots, what we would think of as annual giving or crowdfunding effort. Now, on uh, the just yes. on the principal gift side, who was making that ask? We split it up. Okay. So the president did some, the dean of medicine did some, the medicine advancement team did some, our principal gift team did some, I did okay. one. So it, it just depended on who we felt had the best relationship to get to the individuals quickly. No, okay. they did it. They put together a one to two page case. Here's how we're going to use the, the funds, three main buckets. How are you able to be so nimble on that? Who spearheaded that? I give credit for the idea to the, to the medicine advancement team okay. responding to the real need they could see coming from the clinical side. Okay. Yeah. That's really helpful because I, I like the fact that it wasn't just one person that did it, that you really did divide and conquer on those yeah. asks. Yeah. We divided and conquered on the asks. I was, I was going to say too, we all, the medicine team stood up a, more of a, the crowdfunding grassroots effort. There's over 3,000 donors to medicine's COVID response that have come through that way too. But then in parallel, the university now is standing up, can go to together at UW and see this, a kind of parallel effort to support student emergency COVID-related needs. And mm -hmm. we have three campuses, and so we have that stood up for all three campuses. And, you know, I heard from our student affairs office that in a normal year, they have 300 requests from students for emergency assistance. They had 300 in March alone. I heard our School of Social Work had 60 requests um, from students in the past two weeks for emergency assistance. So, there's a companion need there that we hope we can do some fundraising around. The last I checked, I think we had raised a little under $300,000 across the three campuses for that effort. That effort being a little more grassroots focused. Right. And was that from students who are still on campus? Do you still yes. have? Okay. Yeah. It's coming from students that are facing challenges because they've lost a job that is they're using to pay for tuition. They're needing to, because of the job, they you know, can't pay rent, need food assistance, need access to technology when we moved everything to remote learning. So we, we have a program where we, uh, students can check out uh, laptops and um, Surface tablets and iPads and those kinds of things. And that program went from having 300 devices to 600 devices overnight. And 
I'm told that they could probably use another 500 devices. So students have real needs right now. And as we're looking to the end of the fiscal year, what are your thoughts around year-end conversations with managers, you know, just how you're appraising work for this yeah. year? Yeah, it's a big question. Thank you for asking it. It's been kind of, it was the first big question that all the gift officers were asking. I'm sure, um, because we're very numbers driven. Yeah. So yeah, really fair question. Um, what I told the chief advancement officers was, look, we have three quarters of the fiscal year in the bank. So what I want you to do is prorate the metrics across three quarters. If a gift officer was expected over a year to make 12 asks, let's dial it back to nine asks and let's measure performance against that prorated goal. And as importantly, let's figure out a qualitative way to measure fourth quarter performance in the spirit of maximum flexibility in the spirit of living our university advancement values, in the spirit of creativity and innovation, let's give huge points in the fourth quarter for those intangibles. Uh, we, should, you know, we should be looking at the qualitative aspects of the first three quarters as well, but let's really focus on the qualitative piece for Q4 and wrap that into a, a comprehensive review. That's great. I think that those of us on the East Coast, either I'm not privy to those conversations or we just haven't quite gotten there. I do really get the sense that you're further along because that's the first I've heard of thinking about things in, from prorated lens. And I think it's a great idea. Yeah. And again, it may be University of Washington, but we've, we end our fiscal year on June 30th and we have a history here of, of trying to have all annual reviews done by June 30th. There's already been a bit of history here about not waiting until the end of the fiscal year and then doing the review with a full year's tally, right? Right, so we've right. We've already had a bit, of a, a bit of flex built into the system. This just allowed us to um, kind of state it more positively or more uh, be more affirmative in that. Yeah. Well, do you have anything else you want to share or anything else you think we should know? I've heard people sort of talk about are you pivoting fundraising to COVID? Um, you, we, we talked a little bit about, you didn't yeah. use the word pivot, but we talked a little bit about how we have stood up some COVID-inspired um, opportunities. What I worry about in using the word pivot is that the word pivot to me implies that it's an or, that you're asking donors to move away from something that they've had historical interest in in favor of COVID. I would like to suggest that anything that we do in the COVID space is done as an and. The near, dear, and clear, the, the mission of Columbia, the mission of the University of Washington, the mission of our, of our sister institutions is going to remain, right? Uh, it's going to be there forever. So I, I would caution us to be careful to try to pivot as opposed to giving donors and prospective donors an opportunity to do a bit more in, in focused ways during this unprecedented crisis. I'm glad that you mentioned the pivot because it's something that our team has been talking about almost every day. And we actually just had a phone call with our School of Public Health and we were talking about ways that we can support them. I do think donors will emerge with these interests and these passions as we go through this time, but you're right the core priorities will remain. So I'm glad you said that explicitly. 
Yeah, yeah. I think there are a few donors who who may migrate to things like public health, global health, supporting uh, research in in pandemics and things. That's terrific. You know, we always want to match donor passion with institutional priorities. I think most of our tried and true donors are going to stay with us around mm-hmm. the things that they've cared about for the longest period of time at our, you know, at our respective institutions. Yeah. Well, I am just so grateful that you took the time and you're my first guest from Washington State. I would love to end with my signature question, which is, Dan, what do you know for sure? We're all in this together. We're going to get through it together and we're going to come out of it on the backside better if we stay together. And I think of that at the sociological level, if we stay together as communities, right through to the to the university advancement, university fundraising community. If we stay together and learn from each other um, and help and support each other, we're gonna come out of this on the backside, okay, with some new learning, some new opportunities and um, advancement professionals, fundraising professionals. They're gonna continue to drive support for institutions that's gonna have big impact. It's gonna help those institutions move respective missions forward, help build a better world, a better tomorrow. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for doing it. I hope you'll give me the link so I can see it when it's up. Oh, yeah. Okay.